0: The cost of a breach is the cost of a breach, right? But just looking at a vulnerability that makes it into production, costs to remediate that vulnerability is more expensive after the fact than if you address it up front before it gets into production. And so explaining that to engineers and making sure that You're partnering with them and providing them guidance on what's a go, no-go decision and not being a blocker will help drive adoption.
1: Hello and welcome to Code to Cloud. I'm Tim Chase, Global Field CISO at Lacework. And today I'm joined by Kelly Haydu. Kelly is Vice President of Information Security and Technology at CarGurus, the most visited automotive shopping site in the U.S. Prior to Gurus, she served as Senior Director of InfoSec at Salsify, and before her tenure in the security space, Kelly worked in quality assurance, including lead automation roles across markets and verticals. Kelly, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Tim. So happy to be here today.
1: All right. Great to have you. So let's talk about privacy a little bit. I feel like privacy is one of those topics that has been around not going away. We're seeing chief privacy officers have a prominent place in enterprises, legal a lot of times in their updates talk about privacy. So let's just kind of really dig into privacy and cybersecurity and the overlap there. So wh- where do you think that security and privacy overlap?
0: Security in general, you have to be able to not only detect but protect your data. And by protecting mm-hmm. the data, you need to understand the data that actually lives in your environments and what's being stored right at rest or even in encryption and without being able to understand where that data is, where it lives, and you can't protect it, right? And from a privacy perspective, there are some organizations, especially with banks and HIPAA compliance and things like that, where you have to make sure that you understand the personal data that you're collecting a human, whether the date of birth, a social security number, anything along those lines, you have to make sure that you have the protections in place. And again, you can't protect until you understand where that data lives and where it's being transmitted to. And so, security and privacy really fall hand in hand because the security team needs to understand how to protect it. And privacy laws, and we see this in the European Union, you have to be able to report on what data you're collecting, how long you have it, where you're transmitting it to, all the way back to an actual consumer, right? Employees or consumers in general that have right to access and right to understand what you do have about their data.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the challenges that I face in cybersecurity, and I think it's a little bit the same way in privacy sometimes, is educating executives, right? Executives are very much focused on the business. They're focused on satisfying the customer. But sometimes, you know, educating them on cybersecurity and privacy is different because maybe it's too technical. Maybe they don't completely understand the risks. So how do you educate the executive team on compliance or how would you recommend that someone educate their executive team compliance?
0: I think it's important to put it in business terms, but also put it into real life terms as well. If you get too technical, you'll lose your audience very fast. So if you can correlate it back to somebody's real life or an example of how it may relate back to a theme, it resonates, it resonates more. So you start getting into the technical jargon, you're going to lose people, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. people already think security is boring and, and complex <laughs> and don't understand the jargon, Right. So that's how I kind of start with education at the top level, explaining, you know, what it is we do, but then correlating it to a real life example. And I can tell you that, you know, one of those that I used to give in my previous company and security training was like, you know, when you travel to an airport, think about going through all of the steps in security to get to the airplane and even going and presenting your ID at the counter, right, to get your ticket and to check in and all of the different personal data that you have to provide and all the security checks that you have to go through to get to the plane. And when you Mm -hmm. start to correlate like access controls equal this, security checks, even from a physical security perspective, equal this in terms of technology, the light bulb starts to go on for people.
1: Yeah, no, I I can see that. I, I like that approach kind of correlate that back. But one of the things I think that makes it even more difficult potentially is just kind of the vast amount of privacy laws or privacy laws that potentially may actually be, right? There are, I think, about 15 states that currently have pending approvals of different privacy laws. So how do you keep up on the privacy laws? Like, Do you have a a way that makes it easy to do that? Or is it just a lot of reading, a lot of education?
0: So I'm a member of the International Association for Privacy Professionals. And so I get a lot of my information on upcoming and current law there. And then there's a few other forums where I go and I will read detailed information around things that are coming out in the particular sector, especially related to U.S. privacy law. My previous company, we were fully GDPR compliant and it was a huge undertaking, right? But it was necessary Mm -hmm. because we did business in the UK and in in Europe. So we had to make sure that we were accommodating for, you know, right to erasure slash right to be forgotten and right to access, et cetera, et cetera. And that we had the appropriate paperwork in place, right, for all of our vendors, data processing agreement. And so if we were to be, you know, questioned by a supervisory authority, that we had that appropriate documentation and we could Really truly say at the end of the day that we were operating, you know, per law. But I guess to answer your original question, there's a lot of information to consume. And I think it's important to not only understand your particular area or region that you may be in, but where you may be operating in other regions. And even when you're not operating in other regions, how a data transfer or new laws that are materializing in those regions may affect the ones that you're supporting today.
1: Yeah, that's really good. And and I'm glad you called out the IAPP. I think that's a great resource that I'm involved in as well. I think since they're worldwide, they have kind of a really good handle on what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the U.S. They're always publishing information. And I think they have a really interesting certification as well, just for anybody that's interested, like their CIPT certification, right? Which kind of talks about the interlap of technology and privacy. And for anybody who kind of wants to learn how all of that work, I think that's a good one that I've read. I haven't taken the test yet, but I've read it. I just haven't went and sat for the exam, but yeah, fantastic.
0: I've read it as well. You know, another source that comes to mind is I studied for my master's at Norwich University And they do a really great job at having a cyber degree. But Mm -hmm. my concentration or the area of focus was international privacy perspectives in law. And so Mm -hmm. that really married the two of those particular programs together. And I have peers and professors that I still talk to in that network and that circle about those topics. If you have people that are interested in it, it's always better to talk to them because, you know, otherwise you won't be able to source that information from where you particularly want to source it from, right? Yeah,
1: that's great. That's a great concentration. I hadn't heard of that. So I love that. It's not just a cyber, because I felt like in the past some of these cyber degrees focused on like the operational side, right? Or just the general cyber awareness type of concentration. So I, I love that particular one that you talked about there. I think that's super relevant to today's world. So I'll have to check that out. But like, why do you think it's been so difficult to get a national law? Because I, I, it, it feels like every once in a while, maybe once a year or something, I don't know, you'll get a bunch of people that get up in arms about the latest breach and there'll be some calls for a national law and then nothing will happen and it will die down. Like, why do you think it's been so difficult to take that on as a topic or get one passed?
0: I think it takes time. Right. So the European Union took a long time for them to build and socialize and then really deploy, right? GDPR. And because there is so much regulation around it, I think that at the U.S. government level, they probably don't want to get too granular because now you're thinking about, okay, amendment rights how much information can people have, how much can't they have about you, and putting all of those requirements or mandates on companies and business, there could be conflicting opinions there. I think we should have a federal law. This is my opinion. It would really simplify things. But that being said, we have 15 states that have their own past laws and regs, right? So The question would be then, what do you do with those that have already passed? Because I think one of the worst things that can happen is you have everything at the federal level defined. Then you have all individual states that have their own. And it can get very confusing quickly on, okay, I have to comply with federal law, but then what are the state requirements in this state that I want to operate in? And for large enterprises that operate in multiple states, it's hard to keep up with. Or if you think about it from a European perspective or somebody that's not in the United States, right now, they have to not only consider the federal law, but then they have to also keep up with all of the state laws and changes that may be happening there, too. And it can be very easy to not be in compliance with those if there's so many to keep track of.
1: It's tricky because, you know, obviously the federal would supersede the states. And then you've got to analyze that and understand where and how and what are the penalties. And it's really confusing. And you can look at Europe, I think, to some extent, because, you know, there is GDPR for the EU folks, but then there's also some countries have more specific or more, you know, serious laws that kind of go on top of that. And then you get data residency laws on top of that. And it feels like it just becomes really, really, really hard to do business and and to just make sure that you're in compliance, right? So I wonder if that potentially is part of the problem here in the U.S. And I also wonder if it's not just because, you know, cyber is is hard. And anytime that, you know, a government tries to look at something like cybersecurity and make laws of it, it seems like there's kind of a, do they understand? Don't they understand? Do they start high level where they don't mean anything and they get more specific? Like, it just seems like maybe they don't know exactly how to approach it because it's it's just something that you have to have a, a pretty good knowledge of. I do see that You know, there is becoming more of a willingness, and I don't know if this will eventually go to Congress, but I think you have seen the current administration willing to put some stuff out there. Like if you look at kind of the SEC guidelines that have been put out and things like that, I think that there is some willingness at a national level to put at least a framework up there. But I don't know if you think that will translate into a national law eventually or not, or if that's just, we'll kind of stick to the guidance perspective. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think the the recent changes in the SEC and making sure that there is cybersecurity presence on your board and other requirements for public companies is a step forward because it gives visibility and accountability to really everybody in that particular organization for security. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that as we start to look at privacy law, that those two really kind of have to be married together. It can't be separate from a a law perspective. I know there was a lot of questions, controversy when GDPR was announced around like, well, what does this really mean? It's subject to interpretation, Mm -hmm. right? There was a lot of gray area around it. It wasn't necessarily black and white in some circumstances. And so I think when you leave things up for interpretation, that's where it can get a little cloudy. And so I think that it'll be important. I like that the SEC has put some s- specific guidelines in place and in terms of like the regulation, they'll have to do the same for privacy as well. Because again, if you leave it up for interpretation and then somebody, you know, puts a claim in to say, hey, you know, you are complying with X, Y and Z because you have my data and it says this, now it's going to, you know, potentially the court level, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where it can get a little hairy, right? Do we yep. issue a fine? Do we not issue a fine?
1: I think specificity is key. You no, know, you should have processes and procedures defined. Okay, well, that, that's cool. But you know what does that mean? I think, like you said, being specific and making sure that they know how to lay it out and what needs to happen, I think is the key. So let's shift a little bit and talk about you. And I'd like to know a little bit about how you first got involved in IT and security. And I want to dig into this personally because I know that you and I have something in common here that I think is kind of unique in our path. So how did you first get involved in IT and security?
0: So my background is in, like yours, is in quality assurance. And taught myself how to code, how to automate early on. Back in the days when we had lab servers where I had to go and, you know, rack and stack environments and make sure things were interconnected correctly, that there was security between those, the servers, access to the servers. So early on, I was dealing with security, right? And I saw that trend coming and knew that it was already there, but it may not have had the amount of visibility that it deserved. Even so, putting, you know, certificates on servers and understanding why, as a quality engineer, you had to put that particular certificate on a server, right? And so I was naturally curious and wanted to learn more about it. and did. But I really felt passionate about the fact that there was privacy and security things in the industry that were really up and coming. And I was curious and interested in getting more involved and learning more about it.
1: So you started kind of from that perspective. So yours was more like server level while you were doing your testing and automation and things like that. Mine was similar. I was doing functional testing and automated testing. So looking at, you know, doing the repeatability, automating stuff, and then doing load testing and things like that. And it just seemed like the next step to throw some SQL injection in there and see, like this was back in the days when I feel like IDS was kind of the latest thing that everybody was doing, right? Where... You know, it wasn't just a firewall anymore, but it can look at patterns, right? And kind of working with the CISO that was newly hired to be like, hey, let me do this for you. Because I don't think AFSec was a thing very much at the time for the majority of organizations. It was still kind of leading edge. But how did that get you to where you're at at CarGurus? Because I know you made another, you know, a stop or two along the way. So how did kind of that initial curiosity lead its way into kind of leading security at, at CarGurus?
0: So similar to you, right? I had manual tests. I had automated tests and, you know, obviously you're building your regression suites, but there's those corner cases of what if I gave this person access to this? What would happen? And Mm -hmm. ensuring, okay, if there's an access control here, is it broken or is it not? And how can I manipulate it and try to get around it to your point? So that natural curiosity really was through testing. I love to build programs. I had a lot of experience as I'm sure you did as well in quality around risk management, understanding, okay, here's something that we're ready to ship. What's the risk of it going with the certain level of bugs or or defects that are in the product, right? And understanding that the organization's risk tolerance and the consumer's risk tolerance. And so a lot of my background stems from enterprise risk management as well. And so the organization that I joined after kind of leaving quality was to build their security program and understand the risk appetite of that organization, but also be able to come in and to your point, implement an IDS and understand the technical implications of solutions that we were putting in place. and. Building that foundation, those policies, but also working hand in hand with the customers, making sure that, you know, larger customers felt that their data was really secure in our environment. We held a lot of sensitive data and we wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, those particular customers and those organizations felt good and we felt good about storing it. It goes back to that transmission and data at rest and how long you have that data where it lives and having those guardrails around. So I built a program at Brightcove and then I moved to Salsify where I built their program there for privacy and security. And then now I'm at Carpenters today and built their program. We did have a semblance of a program in place. Obviously we're publicly a publicly traded company. So You know, we had to be SOX compliance, et cetera. So I've really just kind of helped mature that program. But that being said, I think you can appreciate this, Tim, that no program is ever done, no matter (laughs) what state that you're at. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to have an awesome team here at CarGurus and support of the board and the executive team and my peers to be able to continue to evolve and mature the program.
1: If you ever think that a program is done, I think you might need to maybe take a vacation and really think about it and come back and ask yourself why you think that is. Because like security is never done, right? The security industry is always evolving. So like if you think you've got your program like perfect, you're in trouble. Plus, I would get bored out of my mind. I don't know about you, but like if I ever could just put like a checkbox beside a security program, it probably would be time for me to move on because like I had to be building and doing something new. So you kind of hinted on it a bit earlier when you were talking about you come at security kind of with a risk background, but also from a technical background. Like, do you think that's important for a cybersecurity leader to have exposure to both? Like, and in general, what do you think makes a good leader when it comes to cybersecurity?
0: So I think that there's components of both that you need to understand going into security. But I'm a big proponent that really you can learn anything as long as you have the attitude and the aptitude and determination, right? There is something to be said for having had that hands-on experience, but I don't tell people to shy away from exploring security because they may not have you know, the hands-on keyboard experience from a technical standpoint. A lot of that is, it can be learned, right? You just have to have time and see and, and understanding and a high level of what's going on around you. It takes knowledge from the community, So I talk to a lot of CISOs and I have many in my network that we constantly are collaborating and saying, hey, did you hear about this? Or, hey, did you hear about this? Right. I think it doesn't matter your level. If you have a community of people that you can go to to say, did you hear about this particular vulnerability or did you hear about this threat? You can learn that way. If you know how to build a program and you know how to build a community And you understand the technical, you know, risks and potential exposure that you can have at a high level. Like, I don't need to know all of the technical ins and outs, bits and bytes at my level today, because I have really great people that specialize in it.
1: Exactly. Like, let them specialize, put the trust in your team. But one of the things that I think can sometimes be a challenge is still talking to the business. Maybe security doesn't talk to the business very well. There's a gap there. So uh, how are you a strategic partner to the business or how would you advise somebody to to be a partner to to the business? Because I think that ultimately is one of the things that will make security work at at a company is not the beating somebody over the head, but like using the partnership angle. Right. So. Can you just maybe tell how you're a partner to the business or how you would advise someone to be a good partner to the business?
0: I think it's understanding the business's challenges and also what problem they're trying to solve. So my past two organizations, they were SaaS platforms. So what was important to the company? They wanted to make sure that they were able to get their contracts renewed and be able to have prospects feel confident in being able to purchase our solution. And so looking at that, who is going to be my key business partner? Sales is, because if I can make a sales engineer or revenue or successful, then I'm successful and that the company is successful. And how do you do that? You put it in language that they can understand. You build a security package that is digestible by a prospect, right, or by an existing customer. And... You give them that information up front. You're proactive versus reactive. And a lot of organizations appreciate that because on the flip side, as I'm bringing in new vendors to the organization, we have to do our vetting, our due diligence, and look at mm-hmm. the security posture and the privacy of those vendors that we're bringing in-house. And so we're all doing the same thing. And if we can make those lives of those professionals easier on the other side, then it helps to build that trust.
1: It does. And I feel like that particular model works with the business, but it also works with internal teams, right? Making their lives easier and understanding their jobs. So like if you have an application security person who's struggling to get the dev teams to test it, well, if you kind of approach it as, you know, what is your job that you're trying to get done? How can I help you? Like, what are the challenges you're facing? and kind of work within that so that you can get done what you need to get done, but they can get done with what they need to get done. I feel like kind of what you said can apply to the internal teams as well, not just the, the sales engineers or the sales teams or whatever you're after.
0: Yeah, from an engineering perspective, building privacy by design into our pipeline, right? Starting with yeah. the product teams, but really explaining why it's important to do that upfront, front, Right. The cost of a breach is the cost of a breach, right? But just looking at a vulnerability that makes it into production, let's say it's a high vulnerability. Cost to remediate that vulnerability is more expensive after the fact than if you address it up front before it gets into production. And so explaining that to engineers and making sure you're partnering with them and providing them guidance on what's a go, no-go decision and not being a blocker will help drive adoption. And at the end of the day, does an engineer want to have to go back and fix a bunch of defects that have needed production that are security related and say, hey, like your repo, you know, push your code, had, you know, 50 vulnerabilities. Like, no, nobody wants that, right? And so... Yeah. I think everybody, at least in my organization, everybody wants to do the right thing. It's a matter of educating, identification, and understanding what you have in your environment, but identifying those up front and then giving them the tools and the education to be able to remediate it on the fly. Because a lot of times if people don't know how to fix something, right, and they don't have a person or a champion to go to. Those are those circumstances where they may just, maybe they're not educated and they even to be able to say, hey, that's a SQL injection and release it into production.
1: It even kind of goes to the broader question. You mentioned champions, but like, how do you educate like the rest of the company, right? It, obviously, security isn't just something that SEs care about or devs care about. Like, it's a whole company thing. So, like, how do you educate the rest of the company to make security something that they do care about? Because it's not boring or it's not onerous right like what are your general thoughts on how you educate the company as a whole
0: we have security awareness training there's different schools of thought around that whether it should be annual or micro training we have micro training because if you implement a real laborious training exercise nobody's going to pay attention to it right but if you have micro trainings or you know different points in the year where you can promote education in some way Whether it's fishing exercise, you will probably start to get more adoption, but it can't be heavy. When it's heavy, that's when you're not going to get adoption. We also have a security and compliance all the way up at our board level that's non-discretionary work. So if there are things that are a risk of the organization, from an engineering standpoint, it's non-discretionary. You have to build time into your roadmap, quarterly roadmap to fix it.
1: No, I like that. I'm a big fan of micro training. Yeah. I do a little bit of of training for LinkedIn on the side. And that's one of the big things that we look at. Like when you're building out the videos as a part of an overall training, like when I wrote something on DevOps, you know, the videos themselves for each section can't be longer than like two minutes, like that. Right. Because if you start getting 15 or 20 minute videos, people are going to tune out. Right. So I think getting that training in doses is a great way to do that. So like people are looking for, you know, training out there and, and ways to do that. I think looking at a solution that can do that micro-training is a great thought.
0: And make it fun. Make it fun. Nothing is better than receiving a LinkedIn message. So I received a LinkedIn message from an old coworker at a new organization now that said, hey, don't know if you remember me, but you gave this security training at a previous company. And I thought it was like hilarious, but it stuck with me. And that really cut to my heart because I said, yes, I got to that person. They remembered the security training. And if you're going to be boring about it, it's not going to resonate with people. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like in that moment, like I did my job. This person not only remembered the security training, but he remembered me as well. And then was able to reach out to me to say, you know, hey, I have a question about X, Y, and Z. And so to me... That was awesome because I'm not a person where it's like, oh, this is a scary security person and I can't go and ask them a question. And they remembered that I was approachable and that you could.
1: I love that. Yeah, I love, I love doing that, making it fun. I did a capture the flag training exercise with the development teams, right? Kind of meeting them where they are, doing something that was kind of technical where things kept getting harder and harder. At first it was easy and I had security people around to kind of give hints and help. It was kind of cheesy, but like at the end, I think I just got a big, nice little hacking sweatshirt or something when they won. But that dude wore that with pride around the office, like from then on, like I'd see him and he just pointed his shirt, right? Like that's the kind of stuff that's impactful. So finding a way to make it fun is definitely um, the way to go.
0: We did the sweatshirts as well. Did you? (laughs) Yeah. And it was, it it was funny because people would come over to me and say, can I get one of those sweatshirts? And I'm like, (laughs) you have to earn it.
1: You got to earn it. You got to win.
0: People, to your point, like people would brag that they had that sweatshirt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, they would. And, yeah. and I was proud of them when they went, when they did it, right? That's it's not even about, you know, getting a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or a gift card to eat, but it's just something cool. I think most people have an interest in security because it's such an interesting field. Most people want to learn. And so just making it easy for them to learn and fun to learn is the key.
0: It doesn't have to be scary or, or daunting.
1: It does not. Well, it looks like we're about out of time. So, Kelly, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll catch you on another episode of Code to Cloud.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Really appreciate the conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Lacework, the leading data-driven cloud-native application protection platform. Lacework is trusted by nearly a 1,000 global innovators to secure the cloud from build to run. Lacework delivers true end-to-end protection, empowering customers to prioritize risks, find known and unknown threats faster, achieve continuous cloud compliance, and work smarter, not harder, all from one unified platform. Learn more at lacework.com.